0: Good morning, Calvary. Today's scripture reading is taken from Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words." Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Ebihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate and drank. Is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, Calvary. We... Uh... Cut off to a bit of a rough start here. It looked uh, a little more frenzied and harried behind the scenes. All you saw was we just started a few minutes late, but uh, we were scrambling around, but we figured it all out. So it is good um, to finally get going and to connect with you all this morning. And uh, kids, I hope you're doing all right. I'm missing our our little uh, uh, kids blessing uh, halfway through the service, so I can't gather you all together in my arms here this morning. But... Uh, in my spirit, I am. So I'm glad uh, that you are joining your parents and family uh, for the service today. Listen as close as you can. I know it can be hard. Um, today, we are moving forward in our sermon series All Things New, the Story of the Bible and the hearing, Healing of the World. We've been working our way through the storyline of the Bible. We started back in January, if you're joining us uh, new. We started back in January with the book of Genesis, and we've been working uh, forward. We've made it now uh, to Exodus. And uh, Over Holy Week, we entered a new segment of this story. I don't know if you've uh, noticed that. I've been tracking along. But the first part of the story, we called Beginnings. And that kind of covered the age of the patriarchs. Uh, No, I'm sorry. That covered up to the age of the patriarchs, creation and all that happened then. And then we moved to the age of the patriarchs. Uh, And we we tracked through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we got uh, to Monday, Thursday. And on Monday, Thursday, we transitioned to the age of the law because that was when Moses appeared uh, in the story. And of course, Moses is the great lawgiver of the Jewish people. But really, it's only this morning here in Exodus 24 that we start the age of the law in earnest. The age of the law truly begins, it really begins, when the prophet Moses brings the law down from the top of Mount Sinai and gives it to the people. The law, or the covenant, of Moses spans then from Exodus, we could say Exodus 24, when it's given to the people, all the way to the days... Of Jesus. So it covers a huge amount of the biblical storyline. And it's pretty important to have an understanding of the law, the Jewish law, what its function was within the people of God in order to make good sense of the New Testament. So, all throughout the New Testament, we read that the Jewish law was a temporary measure, a foreshadowing of a newer covenant that God was ultimately going to make with his people through Jesus. So the Old Covenant, which it came to be called, this covenant with Moses, was a a foreshadowing, a temporary measure, on the way to the New Covenant that God was going to make through Jesus. So there's more in Exodus 24 than we're going to be able to cover this morning. As I began to write the sermon, I had a whole section, particularly on the blood of the covenant. That's where I was thinking I was going to focus. But as we got going, I had so much else that I decided to take that part and to move it into another sermon. So we're going to circle back around to some things that we're going to have to skip over a bit this morning. We'll pick those up in later sermons. But for this morning, I want to just mainly focus our attention on the fact of the law the fact that god gave a law to israel and what that meant for them and then by extension what does that mean for us this how does this covenant of moses give way or usher in this new covenant age in which we live here today so towards that end i'm going to be highlighting Two truths the law teaches us about redemption, one truth from the Old Covenant, and then kind of fast-forwarding one truth from the New Covenant, and then we're going to end up back in Exodus 24 with its vision of cosmic redemption. I don't know if you picked that up as we were reading through Exodus 24, but it has a vision of cosmic redemption. So an Old Covenant truth, a New Covenant truth, and a cosmic vision. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. So if that doesn't make sense to you now, hopefully it will make sense to you by the time we get to the end of the sermon. So an old covenant truth, a new covenant truth, and a cosmic vision. So we begin with our old covenant truth, and the old covenant truth is this, the law reminds us of our need for guidance. The law reminds us of our need for guidance. So to recap Israel's story a little bit, not going all the way back to the beginning, but the children of Israel were in Egypt in slavery. God delivered them out of uh, slavery. They crossed through the Red Sea, uh, which was like baptism we saw. They ate the bread from heaven. They drank water from the rock, which was like a communion. Then in Exodus 19, we didn't look at this last week, but in Exodus 19, God called Moses up to the mountain on top of Sinai to give him The law so from exodus 19 until exodus chapter 23 moses is on the mountain receiving the law and then in exodus 24 moses comes back down off the mountain and he communicates the law with the israelites so what we have here in exodus 24 is the moment when the law is brought down to the people now this law that moses brings down it constitutes the regulations and the commandments that the Israelites were going to be expected to live by going forward. So they're being given all the instructions about how they are to function as individuals, how they are to function in relation with, with each other, how they're to function as a nation. This is where we get the famous Ten Commandments. So if you have some vague familiarity with the Bible, maybe you're, you're new to Christianity, you're new uh, to the Bible, and you've heard of the Ten Commandments, it comes from this moment here in Exodus chapter 24. And then beyond the Ten Commandments, Uh, There are numerous other laws given in the rest of Exodus. So if you continue reading through the book of Exodus, you'll find all sorts of laws. Uh, Then you'll also find some more laws in Leviticus. The book of Numbers, which comes next, has a bunch of history about the wanderings in the wilderness, but there's some more laws in Numbers as well. And then you get to Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law or the reiteration of the law right before they go into the promised land. And these books constitute the books of the law. They're often called the Pentateuch. So here we have the law that is given to the people that is to govern their entire way of life as the people of God in their relationship with God. So immediately after the Israelites have been redeemed from slavery, prior to them uh, journeying on to the promised land, they pull up on the far side of the Red Sea and God gives them this law. So Moses comes down off the mountain. He says, here are the commandments of God that have been given to me for you. The people answer with one voice, all the words of the Lord that he has spoken, we will do. And this is a huge moment in Israel's history. And it's a huge positive moment in Israel's history. We would be missing the whole point of the law if we viewed this moment as the day that the that the Israelites' light went out. The day the old ball and chain of legalism first took hold. The day when God stepped down from heaven with his thumbs in his suspenders and swagger and said, there's a new sheriff in town, you're going to do what I say. This is not that day. Throughout Israel's history, they rejoice in the fact that God has given them a law. Now, they don't always follow it very well, and not all the people rejoice all the time, but the righteous people... Within the nation of Israel, view the law that has been given to them as a great gift. It is not viewed as a curse or a burden, but as a tremendous blessing. So here, listen to what Moses has to say in Deuteronomy. He's recapping the law, and he's, about to, he's, he's kind of giving them a, a second giving of the law, as it were, reminding them of what God has said right before they're about to enter into the promised land. And he says this about the law and about the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, and and then listen to this, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So Moses says to the people, we are such a privileged people. We're a privileged nation. We have a God who is near to us. He hears us when we call, and he has come, and he has given us statutes and rules that are righteous and good. We talked about righteousness in previous sermons, but righteousness is a good thing, right? It's the pathway to blessing. And then listen to the psalmists when they speak of the law. So Psalm 147, 19 kind of has that same spirit. The psalmist says this, God declares his word to Jacob, which is a name for Israel. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. The Israelites saw themselves as unique among all the peoples of the world because they uniquely had the laws, the statutes and rules of the creator God. No one else had that. The Jewish people had that, and it was such a privilege to have it. Psalm 119 has this same spirit. Listen to this. The psalmist writes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The law was viewed by the righteous Israelites as a mark of God's favor, a mark of God's care, a mark of God's benevolence. It was a privilege to have. Righteous Israelites wanted to know how to walk in the ways that were pleasing to God. But how could they do it if they didn't know the way, if they didn't know the God's who made them laws, but here God had given them the laws. The law was like a road map, a lamp, the psalmist says, that warned of dangers and pitfalls and pointed the pathway to blessing. And that's what we're seeing here in this moment in Exodus 24, as Moses comes down off the mountain with the laws. He's not coming down with a curse, he's coming down with a blessing. He's coming down with a lamp. He's coming down with provision. He's coming down with a guide. Not all laws are just, of course. But law as a concept, as a category, of an, as an idea, is exactly what human beings need. And Exodus 24, I think, is inviting us to think about law as a concept in a positive way. The Jewish law isn't, of course, it was for the Jewish people, right? But most of us at Calvary are not Jewish, so the Jewish law wasn't for us, per se, Right? But the gift of the law to the Jewish people helps us think about the concept of law. We all need guidance as human beings, we all need direction. We need a true north by which to set our sails. Now, I don't know what you think about the concept of law this morning. Some of us are more compliant by nature and we more easily submit to rules and authority. Others of us bristle at rules. I think maybe there are three reasons, maybe at least three reasons, why we tend to bristle at rules. Theological reasons, cultural reasons, and then personal or personality reasons. Theologically, uh, if you are a uh, uh, either a lay theologian or perhaps even a professional theologian, right? And we have some of both, many of both uh, at Calvary. Um, Maybe this is something you've encountered, but theologically there's a strand of Christian theology that has a very strong law versus gospel distinction. Of course, the gospel is good, so if the, if the gospel is against something, then the thing that it's against must be bad. And so in this law versus gospel distinction, the law oftentimes is viewed in a fairly negative light. So there could be some theological reasons. Perhaps you've picked up some of this, even if you're not a lay or professional theologian, but you've picked up some of this way of thinking about law or perhaps even the Jewish law because of this strong gospel versus law distinction then there's cultural reasons that I think we can resist or bristle at the concept of law. We Americans have a somewhat, I think, conflicted view of law. On the one hand, we are a nation of law. We have a constitution, we have a bill of rights, we have further amendments. Arguably, we have the best legal system in the world, and we're proud of that. I mean, we, we think that's one of our one of our uh, wins as a country. But on the other hand, we're also very independent, we Americans. We do not like higher external authorities telling us what we should be doing. That's how our whole national experiment started. We didn't like the king of England telling us what we needed to be doing, and so we kicked him out. The words of that famous actor, philosopher Patrick Swayze captured the American spirit when he said, no one puts baby in a corner. My kids are telling me I need to use more modern quotes rather than just quoting from like Aristotle and Plato. So I decided that I would try to find something more modern. I'm not sure if 1987 qualifies as contemporary or modern. And I suspect that my kids have no idea who Patrick Swayze is, but there you go, it's the best I could do. So in any case... We have theological reasons, perhaps. We have cultural reasons, perhaps. I think then there are just some innate personality reasons. Some of us just have more personality wirings that make us uh, more resistant to external control. And we view law as just another way of crimping our style. The law is, is the man keeping us down. It constrains, it confines, it robs us of joy and life and freedom. Because for us, the highest goal is freedom. We want autonomy. You know you're a reflexive rule rejecter if your your first response to a rule is, "Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Nah, we'll we'll see. You know, if rules are hard for you, I don't judge you. Truly, I do not judge you. I'm more compliant by nature, so I I kind of admire the self-confidence and the self-assurance of reflexive rule rejecters. So if that's you out there, you can just know that I, I admire you somewhat. But whatever reason you might have for resisting rules, and all of us have some uh, innate resistance to varying degrees of, uh, of resistance to rules, let me encourage you, let me encourage all of us to submit freely and humbly to God as the great authority and rule giver. A basic premise of Christianity is that human beings need guidance beyond their own wisdom. There is a pathway that seems right to a man, Proverbs says, but its end is the way of death. We, in our own wisdom, we follow paths that seem wise to us, but they don't often lead to blessing. They don't always lead to blessing, right? Sometimes they lead to death. We need guidance beyond ourselves, just as children need guidance beyond themselves and they look to the guidance of parents, Human beings are like children who need guidance in relation to God. Christianity asserts that God, the creator, is best positioned to provide this wisdom. The story of Israel, the story of the Bible, challenges our innate resistance to the concept of law. Is there a particular place in your life, perhaps, where you need to submit To God's wisdom, but you have been too prideful or too untrusting to do so. Is there some place in your life, some place that the Lord perhaps is putting his thumb on in your life and saying, I want you to submit and to trust me, but you're resisting? Is there an area of your life where you are too quick to assert your own autonomy and independence? You want to be your own person. Perhaps there's a place where you desire to stay in control and your control is robbing you of a blessing. As one famous tyrant once said, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Maybe you're like, you hear that this morning, you're like, oh yeah, that's me, that's me. I would rather serve in hell than reign in heaven. Those actually are the words of Satan from Milton's Paradise Lost. So maybe you want to rethink whether that's you or not. And you should be careful because you may just get what you wish for, which is what Satan got in Milton's Paradise Lost. There is no peace in being your own king. We were not made to be at the top of the food chain. We were made to be near the top of the food chain, But God in his sovereignty and wisdom, the immortal creator, stands above us and gives us direction for our lives. There is no peace in being your own king. There is peace in giving control of your life to God. Despite our instincts, we are not best positioned to govern our own lives. No human being, no angel, Is so self sufficient that they are fit to govern themselves. We all need guidance. The law of God given to the nation of Israel here in Exodus 24 reminds us that we all need God's wisdom and guidance. So let me encourage you this morning to be ruled, to be lawed, to be guided by God. So that's the first lesson from the Old Covenant. The law reminds us of our need for guidance. And now to the second lesson, the lesson from the New Covenant, which I think is even better than the first lesson, is the law reminds us of our need for power. The law reminds us of our need for power. The law was great for what it was. We saw that already. The the righteous Israelites, in receiving the law, they received it as a gift and a blessing. It was a guide. It was a lamp. It was something that was positive. But it was only a temporary measure. It addressed human weakness. It addressed our human finitude, the fact that we couldn't always figure out our own way. It addressed human weakness and our propensity to err, but it couldn't heal human weakness. It couldn't resolve human weakness. It couldn't fix the root of the problem. If you've been around in our sermon series all the way back in January, you saw early on that the problem of the story began in Genesis chapter 3 when humanity went their own way. They rejected the law, the wisdom, the guidance of God. They said, we can figure this out on our own. And when they tried that, that proverb was fulfilled, as it were. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There was a way that seemed right to humanity in Adam and Eve, but in the end it led to death. And we have had the problem of death ever since. We cut ourselves off from the wisdom of God. And death has been the thing that has plagued us. And death has been the thing that has crimped our wisdom. It has crimped our judgment. It has made us such that we can't figure things out on our own. And so God gave the law as a temporary measure to address the problem of our finitude and our death. I think the law is a little bit, not a little bit, I think the law is a lot like Zoom. So we've all been spending a lot of time on Zoom uh, lately, or at least many of us have been spending time on Zoom. Certainly as a church, we've been making it a principal platform. And in this age of quarantine, Zoom is a great stopgap. And it's a blessed half measure that helps us stay connected. Right, so we're able to continue in our uh, employment at work. Many of us, because of Zoom, we're able to continue having our services here because of Zoom. We're able to continue relationships because of Zoom, and whether it's FaceTime or whether it's some other app, but something like it. But here's the thing with Zoom: it's only a stopgap. It is only a half measure. In the same, it it it's it's better than nothing. Zoom is better than nothing. But it can't fix the root problem of our disconnectedness. The problem of this whole pandemic situation is it has separated us out from each other. We can't connect relationally in all the ways that are normative and that are healthy. And so we are connecting artificially, virtually through Zoom. The problem with Zoom is that it can't actually truly reconnect us in all the ways that we need to be connected. It kind of gestures at connectedness. It, it, it reminds us of our need for connectedness, but it can't actually truly connect us. Zoom is good for what it is, but it can't solve the root problem of our disconnectedness. In the same way, the law was better than nothing. It was good for what it was. It curbed the inherent waywardness of humanity, but it couldn't heal the inherent waywardness of humanity. Something more beyond the law was needed, just like we need something more beyond Zoom to solve the problem of a global pandemic. The problem of the law wasn't and sometimes I think this is a this is a little bit of an aside for those of you that are interested in this sort of thing on a theological level. The problem for the law wasn't fundamentally that it couldn't be kept just in the same way that the problem with Zoom is not that we can't use it. Now, we had some problems with it this morning, right? We were trying to make it work, right? But even if we had made it work with our stream, we're using the stream, not Zoom, but even if we had made it work perfectly, it still doesn't solve the problem. Even the law followed perfectly doesn't solve the problem. This is the problem of the law. It can't fix, no matter how well it's kept, it can't fix the problem Of death. Something more is needed. So, fast forward now in Israel's history, about a thousand years, and in 586 BC, the covenant that God had given to Moses in Exodus 24 failed. God gave a covenant to Moses. The people said they would do it, they did not do it, they did not follow the law. And they so transgressed God's law that they were finally driven into exile. And there, back in captivity, which is where they had started, right? God had brought them out of captivity from Egypt, made a covenant with them, given them a law. They had so transgressed God's law that he sent them back into captivity. And there in captivity, it seemed that all hope was lost. But it wasn't lost. During their exile in captivity, the Jewish prophets began to prophesy that one day God would make a new covenant with Israel. He would make a new covenant with them. And in this new covenant, the law this time would be written internally on the heart by the Spirit of God, not written externally on tablets of stone. And that with this new covenant, the children of God would be obedient. This covenant would be different because it would be written internally on the heart rather than just imposed externally from the top. It would come up from within. That the Spirit of God would write the law on the heart so that the people would be obedient to this covenant in ways that they were not obedient to the first covenant. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. chapter 31, he's writing during the days of the exile. He's prophesying of this new covenant that's going to come. He writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's referring back to this day here in Exodus 24. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And then listen to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. He's also speaking of this new covenant that will come. He's also a prophet in exile. He says, uh, quoting the Lord, I will sprinkle clean water on you, Referencing the Israelites. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So this new covenant is prophesied that's going to come in which God would write the laws Of the covenant on the hearts of the people through his own spirit. And this new covenant was finally given in the days following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. We can see the giving of this covenant in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now, Maybe you know of Pentecost if you've been around church for a while and you know that it's one of the high holy days of the church. And maybe you think of Pentecost a little bit like you think of like Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter, where we think about the first Monday, Thursday, because the first Monday, Thursday happened with Jesus. And then there was the first Good Friday, which happened with Jesus. And then there was the first Easter morning, which happened with Jesus. And none of those days had happened before. But Pentecost is not like that. Pentecost is a Jewish celebration that had been around for a long time, hundreds of years. And in the days of Pentecost, when they would come together on the day of Pentecost to celebrate, what they were celebrating was Exodus 24. They were celebrating the day when the law came down from heaven and was delivered to the people. And so that the Spirit of God in the new covenant would come down on the day of Pentecost is saying something. It's saying that this is the new covenant. This is the spirit of God coming down to his people to write the laws upon the heart. And here's the great thing about this new covenant that is unleashed on the people on the day of Pentecost. The great thing about this new covenant is it is not only our guidance and our roadmap to righteous living, which is what the old covenant was, but it is also the power For righteous living as well. The law is written on the heart by the Spirit of God. And because of this, we are enabled, therefore, to walk in the ways of the covenant. That is the chief feature of the new covenant. The old covenant failed because it didn't have power to address humanity's frailty and infirmity. But the new covenant succeeds because it actually brings the healing that is needed to address the thing that made a need for the covenant to begin with. The old covenant could command, but it couldn't enable. But the new covenant under Jesus brings not only a new law, but new power. The resurrecting, life-transforming power of God's Holy Spirit. And listen, this is such good news for all of us. But maybe this is especially a word that you needed to hear this morning because you are feeling beaten down and defeated by your sin. You know the rules. You know the path that you should walk. It's like the lamp has been shown saying, here is the path, walk in it, but you can't seem to get there. You dig deep, you try with all your strength, but you just can't pull it off. And listen, I have been there. God knows I have been there. I understand what that is like. There's a temptation in those moments to sometimes fall into a trap of thinking that being a Christian only means we've been handed a set of rules to live by. And all we can do is just the best that we can do. We live as Christians like we're still living under the law of Moses, all rules and no power. But to reduce Christianity down to a list of rules that you have to keep in your own strength is to miss the point entirely about what Christianity is. Christianity isn't just a list of rules. It's a single rule, a single law, that comes with the power to keep it. So, last week we looked at communion as a sign uh, that uh, God's grace is a person. Well, we can say the same thing about the law of God. The law of God is also a person, it's the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Jesus himself is the standard, he is the ideal. He is the true north that we point our ships towards. He is the object that governs our lives. And he is also the power to live according to that ideal. That's what our baptism and our communion are all about. They are signs of our union with Jesus, who is the living ideal of God's heart, and who is the power to live up to this ideal. We do not, as Christians, follow abstract rules. It's not as though God was sitting up in heaven. He was thinking about creating Christianity. He's like, "Mm, okay, let's see. Let's, uh, no, no adultery, no lying, no stealing. What else? You know, he kind of just gave a list of abstract rules. We don't follow a list of abstract rules. We follow Jesus, the spirit of whom has been written into our hearts and by whose power we live. Do we want to know how we should live our lives? We look to Jesus. He is the great law, the great rule that we follow. All the glory of the new covenant, all the capacity to change and to be different, all the capacity not to be just who God wants us to be, but to be who we want to be. All of us want to be what we were meant to be. All of this comes, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's where we get the power. St. Augustine once prayed to the Lord, give what you command and command what you will. And what he meant by that was, if you give me the power to live into your commands, then command anything you want. I need your power. I need the gift. Give me the thing that you command and then go ahead and command what you will. In the new covenant, God gives what he commands. Maybe you're beaten down by your sin and broken this morning and you're tempted either to, to give up or perhaps if you've got a lot of gumption, you're not tempted to give up, you're just tempted to keep trying harder in your own strength. Don't do either of those things. Don't give up, but don't keep trying harder in your own strength. You've got to tap into the life-changing, life-transforming power of the new covenant. If you're a Christian this morning, then here's what you do. You confess your failures to God, and you confess your failures to some trusted friends or family. James tells us that we confess our sins to one another, that we might be healed. Sometimes it's, we think, well, I'll just confess my sin to God. Bonhoeffer, a great theologian, he said, if we think we're only going to confess our sins to God and not confess our sins to other people, maybe we're not really confessing our sins to God. If we're going to confess our sins to God authentically, then we need to confess our sins to other people. Find some trusted family or friends to confess your sin to, where you're broken down, where you're stuck. right? Confess to God, confess to the people of God, and then call out to God that His new covenant promise would come true in your life. Ask Him that the promise of the Spirit being written on your heart, that law would come true in your life and give you victory in that area of your life where you are struggling. And then believe in the power of the Spirit. Jesus said all the time, according to your faith, will be done to you. Look, if you ask God for healing, believe that he will grant you that healing. We saw back in the example of Abraham, where he was justified by faith, where he was reckoned righteous by faith, that this righteous deliverance of God was brought into the present in his life because he believed the promise of God. Let me encourage you to not just ask God for deliverance and healing, but to believe that he will give you this deliverance and healing through the power of the Spirit. I'm reminded of the the man who was asking for healing for his child in the Gospels, and he said, oh Jesus, would you please heal my child and you know if you can and Jesus said if you can you know all things are possible for the one who believes and then the man said i believe help my unbelief maybe that's the best you've got today right pray that prayer i believe help me in the midst of my unbelief pray that the god pray that god would give you faith and then finally be ready to work and right? it's not always the case it's sometimes the case but it's not always the case that god just drops into your life with the holy spirit Sprinkles some Holy Spirit pixie dust over you, and then miraculously, you're, that sin drops from you without any effort. Sometimes that happens. I think that that happens early on sometimes in our lives as Christians. I'm re- remembering a friend of mine from my previous church, a guy named Jack, and uh, Jack was a great guy, and we got together one time, and we were in ministry together, and, and uh, I asked him about his testimony, and he told me that He became a Christian because he uh, was an alcoholic and he just could not shake his alcoholism. He had tried and tried and tried and tried. He'd even prayed about it all the time. But he said, one day I was sitting with my shot of Jack Daniels and I knew I was in trouble. I knew I couldn't stop myself. I knew that I was wrecking my life. And he he said, I didn't know what else to do. He said, I prayed and I said, God, you gotta help me not be an alcoholic. And then he said this, He said, for whatever reason, that night, for the first time, I prayed in Jesus' name. He said, I had not done that before. But he said, I prayed, God, you got to help me not be an alcoholic in Jesus' name. And then he shot back his glass, got himself drunk, and that was the end of that night. But then he didn't touch alcohol for like two more weeks. And he couldn't figure out like, What's going on? I don't even want drinks. I don't even want, I don't have a desire for alcohol. Like, well, how did this happen? And then he remembered that he had prayed in Jesus's name that last time. And that was what brought him to a place of conversion. Because he thought, the power of Jesus's name has delivered me from alcohol. And I talked to him probably 10, 15, 20 years after that moment, and he had never gone back to alcohol. And sometimes God's deliverance in our lives is like that. We pray in Jesus' name, even in just a little bit of faith, and God de- delivers us miraculously. But it's not always like that. I wish it was always like that, but it's not always like that. Sometimes we just got to work hard at it, right? God is with us. He will be with us. He's going he's gonna to put us through the paces, as it were, like a good coach, makes us work, and he's going to bring us to a place of victory and freedom, but it's going to take some time. So when you come to God for deliverance and you ask the Spirit to work in your life, be ready to work. Don't think it's just going to happen in some miraculous thing. It might. Pray that it will, but be ready to work. God's deliverance in our lives is not going to be fully and finally complete in this life before the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the gift of the Spirit, says that the Spirit coming into our lives on that day of Pentecost, it's a deposit, it's a down payment, that guarantees what is to come in the future. And he goes on to say that we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. There's a gradual transformation that happens in our life. And so we won't experience the fullness of God's deliverance here and now in our lives, but we can experience the beginnings of God's deliverance here and now in our lives. If you're not a Christian this morning, then let me say to you, please know that entry into this covenant this new covenant is free and it's open we enter into Christ's covenant by grace through faith romans 10:9 and 10 says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead we shall be saved which is another way of saying we shall be brought into the saving power of this covenant. We don't have to work our way into the covenant. We can't buy our way into the covenant. We can't fix ourselves and clean ourselves up to get into the covenant. We come into the covenant because the covenant has what we need. The provisions of the new covenant are complete forgiveness of our sins and then the renewal by the Holy Spirit to make us into whom God desires us to be. Let me encourage you, if you're not a Christian, you're watching this morning, and you want the provisions of the power of God in your life, you know that sin is a problem that has beset you, that you can't defeat on your own, then confess with your mouths that Jesus is the Lord of the covenant. He is the covenant giver. And then... uh, then believe in your hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that that resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead can be deployed into your life as well by the Spirit, and you too will be saved and brought into the covenant. Well, I want to finish here with the cosmic vision that we find back in Exodus 24. We've skipped over the blood of the covenant. We're going to pick that back up in a few weeks. I want to close here with this cosmic vision that we see in verses 9, 10, and 11. Moses and the priests and the leaders of Israel go up to the mountain. They've been given God's guidance. They've been purified by the blood. And there on the mountain, they feast in the presence of God. It's a beautiful picture. You can almost just scoot right by it sometimes if you're reading through the Bible and not quite see it. But it's a beautiful vision. They, the, the streets, like, the, the, like sapphire, right? They, the, the ground is like sapphire. The pavement is like sapphire. They see the God of Israel. What a privilege. God comes down. He makes a covenant with his people. He cleanses them by the blood of a substitute life. And then he invites them into his presence to behold him and to feast with him. Exodus 24, 1 through 11 gives us the whole redemptive story in brief. It's the same picture that we get in Revelation 21, which speaks of the wedding supper of the Lamb. This new Jerusalem, the great jeweled city with streets of gold as clear and as smooth as glass, where we will see the face of God. In the face of Jesus. The story of the Bible, the healing of the world, the healing of humanity, it all ends in this consummating moment of beholding God. He is life itself, He is life that is given to the world through us. This is what it means to be made into the image of God, to see God and become like God. The Apostle John in 1 John 3, 2 writes, we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. To see God, to behold God, is to become like God. It is to be transformed into his image, to see the final source, the ultimate source of life itself. This is the great hope Of the human being. So, this morning, this week, let's keep trusting the Lord as He brings His healing into the world and into our lives, as He brings His law into the world and into our lives, as He brings the law, which is the person of His Son Jesus Christ, through His Spirit into our lives, healing us, transforming us, making us new. Let's keep looking to Him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great gift that is Jesus. We feel innately, Lord, in our lives the great need that we have of guidance. And we feel the ineffectiveness of external guidance always given from the top down doesn't work perfectly, Lord, to get the guidance from the top down. We need somehow to have this guidance birthed within our hearts. And so, God, we thank you for the new covenant provisions. We thank you for the spirit of Jesus that is inside of us, that helps us to walk in the ways of Jesus. God, help us to look to you for your great gift of your son, the gift of your spirit, the gift of your law. and him we trust, in his name we pray. Amen.